This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. I'm your host, Eric Jones. Coming up, Ganjana and I sit down with Tani Sebro, Assistant Professor of Diaspora Studies, Human Rights, and Transnational Migration in the Department of Global and Intercultural Studies at Miami University, Ohio. We'll hear about her interesting work along the Thai-Burma border and explore what it means to horizontalize one's research. Well, good morning and welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. Uh, I'm Eric Jones, your host, and across from me... Hello, my name is Ganjana. I think we've met before, podcast <laughs> listeners. That's right. It's a familiar voice. And to my left, directionality important for the podcast listener. Hi, I'm Tani Sebro. Happy to be here. Tani is uh, here at the Burma Conference, and uh, we're going to hear a little about what she's, uh, what she's doing here. But I guess I should first say she is Assistant Professor of Diaspora Studies, Human Rights, and Transnational Migration in the Department of Global and Intercultural Studies at Miami University, Ohio. Does that all fit on a business card? That's a mouthful. <laughs> Very <Double>. small print. <laughs> a double-sided, yeah. Um, and so thanks for being here. And uh, uh, this is sort of a, Ganjan often steps in as, as co-host, but this one, we're, we'll be doing some, inter- she'll be in, wearing, in the hot seat as well. I'm wearing two hats, the yes. stylish look of two yes. hats. You can pull it off. Yeah, I think I can. Uh, if anyone uh, can, it's Ganjana. <laughs> um, so maybe we can start, Tiny. If you want to tell us about tell us about what you uh, what you just presented here at the conference, and then we can get into some of these uh, research methodology questions. Oh, okay. Um, well, I just got back from a panel where I presented on a chapter of my dissertation research. Um, I conducted research uh, along What's the, the title of that dissertation. Oh, it's called "Dancing the Nation: The Politics of Exile, Mobility, and Nationalism Along the Thai-Burma Border." Nice. Yes. So uh, I, I presented on a chapter of the dissertation um, that dealt with the politics of dance and the politics of death. Um, along the Thai-Burma border. And in particular, um, I talked a lot about the death of a prominent Thai uh, monk. Um, And so sort of theorizing death and theorizing mobility and also theorizing um, how dance is used um, as a vehicle to um, promote nationalism and coherence amongst Thai exiles. And for those who are listening and are familiar with some of the prominent Thai Buddhist, or not Thai, but Buddhist figures in mm-hmm. Thailand, that was um, Luang Po Ta Seng. Luang po and ta he's seng. very, very famous, mm-hmm. very prominent, and it was a big news even for non-community mm-hmm. um, oh. members mm-hmm. that he had passed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he sort of transcends um, the Thai or Thai and Thai cultural boundary as a kruba. Uh, so as a holy man and a highly regarded monk. Mm-hmm. And he's a, he's a name that all Thai would know, probably. People who are fam- more familiar with Buddhist studies and um, ideology and prominent teachers in the religion would know mm-hmm. who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kruba is a northern Thai word okay. for monk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks. And uh, again, one of the many great panels that uh, you'll be hearing more about in other podcasts uh, here at the Burma Studies Conference. Uh, we also pulled you two in here to to talk a bit about, you both have, uh, I think, interesting and novel approaches to, to research and that uh, define maybe generationally uh, uh, a, a, a new way of, of going at, um, of doing your work and doing research. And I think it should be of interest to our uh, listeners. So uh, maybe Ganjana, tell us a little about uh, what you do, but especially how you do it. So the, the common threads that I think Tani and I have is that we do community-centered research. It's not what the traditional um, imperial or colonial helicopter swoop in, get your data, swoop out, and um, publish henceforth. And what I really want to talk about in terms of my own research in the Thai community, both in Thailand and the United States, and hopefully in other Thai communities worldwide, is that the relationship of the researcher and the community, right? And the issue is particularly salient for me, if we can call it an issue, because I'm a community member myself. 
and the expectations of me from the community and my role in it is going to be immediately and distinctly different than my friends who may be doing similar type of research right. in the same community who are not Thai. Yeah, and you'll um, have interesting perspectives to compare right, on that. Right, and front. and so so give give us give an example of what you're talking about. You're talking an abstract. Like, do you have yeah. that one that comes to mind oh, yeah. of how so this affects you? When I wanted to start doing field work in LA, um, so my dissertation worked on language and identity in the Thai diaspora in LA, particularly how they use the language to build their community and what that what t being Thai meant to them, how they talk about being Thai, and, and also um, the variety of Thai itself that they use in being Thai. Um, Especially compared to how it might be used in Bangkok versus right, Los Angeles. Right, So I did a comparative study just because no one has ever done Thai language being used outside of Thailand before. We had to k kind of ground it in somewhere. Um, and being a graduate student at the time, you get trained in all these methodologies. And the field of linguistics, when you do field work, it's very separate. It's always about the other that uh -huh. you're studying. Even if it's your native language, you're encouraged to treat it as the other. And I got to L.A. and I, I wanted to debut myself in the community as you would if you were an outsider. You have to introduce yourself. So I went to the largest gathering that was happening at the time. I timed my arrival in L.A. with the Thai um, Father's Day celebration at one of the biggest Buddhist temple because I knew the whole community would come out and be there. And I would get a chance to mingle and meet them in non-formal ways and just kind of naturally develop this network that we are all encouraged to do in the field to get that interviewee, right? The, the network method of getting the next interview. And so I showed up at the temple and I didn't really know where to start because Thai society is already hierarchical. So based on my perceived age and right. social position, I couldn't demand or uh, even ask or request an interview from any community leader my, do you think, do you think a, like a, a foreigner or a non-Thai could have like worn that hat? Yes, yes, and they do, and they do. My mm -hmm. friends don't have the same um, uh, uh, obstacle when trying to get an interview because they are often approached at these type of uh, Thai audience events to say, mm -hmm. what are you doing here? They're a right. novelty, right? Um, and so I walked around. No one would talk to me, and I'm trying to introduce <laughs> myself. I had gone to Staples and made these name cards so I can hand them out because I know that they're culturally important. And um, no, no one wanted to talk to me about it. And, and linguistics as a field is so obtuse uh, to other people that it, they just didn't really understand what I was doing there. So I just started exploring all the booths that were <laughs> on display at this festival, and one of them was the census. And I thought, when did the U.S. census start caring about Thai people? This is new. <laughs> so I dropped by and found this really enthusiastic group of volunteers, and I said, what is the census booth doing at a Thai event? And she said, oh, we, um, for the first time, have Thai language census materials, and we're trying to get more Thai people in the United States to write down specifically that they're Thai instead of marking other, right, for Asian. Mm. Wow. Because we've been just Asian other for however many years we've been in the United States. And I thought, oh, wow, that's so fascinating. And she said, you know what, sweetie? And she used kind of the munitive, you know, form. I really have to pee. So... <laughs> I'm the only one at this booth. Do you mind? Oh, no. Do you mind just standing here? Um, and if people come with questions, just give them pamphlets and tell them I'll be right. I really have to go to the bathroom and no other volunteers are here. And I said, I couldn't turn down an elder. And so mm -hmm. I said, sure, auntie, go pee. Um, I'll, I'll hold down the fort. And the entire time I was doing field work, I did uh, outreach for the census with this group of volunteers <laughs> because that was my that was the expectation now right and and um, also i realized that it was going to right. force and, and, and non-thai researcher wouldn't have been asked to do that right like, yeah. well and, right and, and it speaks to the the incredible importance of, of feeling like you have some kind of purpose when you're doing field work because oftentimes you go in and you're just collecting all this sort of nebulous data and people right. have no idea what you're doing there 
you know, you're just kind of hanging out, yes. doing this kind of deep hanging out stuff. And it's kind of disconcerting <laughs> for people because they don't know what to do with you. Right. But if you're there with a purpose, then all of a sudden they can sort of fit you into the social picture. Exactly. Right? And, and because I I was new and the L.A. community is already well established mm -hmm. and quite close knit for how big it is that they they were kind of wary of this new person mm -hmm. who demanded all these things of them. And so um, the rest of the time I was involved in the Thai um, Complete Count Committee and my my uh, advisor was really concerned. And she said, you're not there to volunteer. You're there to do field work. You need to be doing field work. And I think what she didn't understand mm -hmm. was that in order for me to mm -hmm. do field work is I have to be part of the mm -hmm. community because that's the perception mm -hmm. that they have. That's the expectation of me mm -hmm. in that space. Um, but yeah, so three months later, I was doing a press conference for mm -hmm. this organization <laughs> <laughs> at the consulate. It really escalated quickly. Yeah. But the fact that, that I had to go to all these different events with them meant that I became a familiar face really quickly in the community and they trusted me. Mm -hmm. So from then on, it was fine. Um, so what's, what's fascinating is that so those are, those are just implicitly understood rules that the community has and things that are expected of you and so you did them and uh, kind of uh, where Tani wouldn't have had the same expectations but she yet chose kind of a similar research path in terms of trying to uh, meet um, I don't know, indigenous expectations or to try to to try to um, um, level the power mm -hmm. dynamics right maybe. yeah to not leverage their outsiderness as much. And I and I think that this is something that that you know both of us are kind of committed to decolonizing our research in various ways and I think that that um, may stem particularly because we spent um, It's a good book title by the way. We yeah, we, we spent uh, our our graduate careers at the University of Hawaii at Manoa um, and we became hypersensitive to the sovereignty struggles of the Kanaka Maoli, of the oh. Native Hawaiian people, and understanding our presence there as settlers and seeing sort of those fraught relationships and seeing how that translates into how we also have to think ethically about our role as researchers. And so in my own case, that became you know, highly problematic um, you know, as I began reading a lot of post-colonial theory and engaging with subaltern scholars is sort of like justifying me as a Euro-American woman going into the field and doing research um, in Northern Thailand amongst a fairly, a very marginalized group of people. And um, so how do I kind of, how do I approach that um, and sort of Without <coughs> falling into the easy trappings of yeah. colonialism. Because right? I could have gone in and, and sort of played the expert um, and you know, done a bunch of formal interviews, and I would have had a very different experience than what I did. Um, and sort of my entry story to the field um, was that I just started showing up at various temples. Yeah, and I was just say, give us an example. Is that really yeah. Good? So, um, so when I first started, I would go to um, temples that were uh, they were sort of Taiyai temples um, in Chiang Mai. And what I would observe there was just a lot of very intensive cultural revitalization activity, um, lots of dancing, lots of music making and uh, practicing martial arts and so forth in the temple grounds. And so I would just kind of go and be a fly on the wall and just be observing and observing for days on end. And then finally, one of the monks that I had been in doing interviews with, he was kind of like, why are you just sitting there? You should be joining us. And it was this fantastic moment where I realized that, you know, sort of previously to this, I'm a dancer. I love to dance. And that's sort of one of my ways of moving in the world and being in the world. That's where I feel the most comfortable. And I, I kind of yearned to dance with them, but I didn't feel like it was appropriate in the research context. But then I was sort of invited to do that. And it was this beautiful kind of embodied moment where I realized that you know, the dance is a language in and of itself. And so part of me learning to be in this community has to also me being learning to move with this community. So it's that kind of concept of kinesthetic empathy that you get through doing that kind of embodied work. And through it, I found that my research collaborators related to me in a completely different way. I mean, I was a 
not a very good dancer. <laughs> um, you know, it, the kind of dances that they do are very complex and very different. You know, I was trained in Western classicalized forms of dance. And so, so you, you aren't able to bend your fingers backwards to touch your... <laughs> my, I was, I mean, their gracefulness was infinite in comparison with mine. <laughs> I was obviously, I was just this very awkward, you know, person. And, and one of the things that they thought was, was um, super fun to do, which happened often, um, we, we would be practicing... <laughs> a choreography or a set of dances and we would be preparing for a big festival like Kaupansa or something mm -hmm. like that. And so there so would the be the beginning this, of Buddhist Lent. Yeah, the beginning of Buddhist Lent. And and we would um, you know, they'd had the big stage set up and maybe three or four hundred people would be gathered to watch the Jat Dai, which is the the theater performance, the theater and dance performance. And um, one of the things that frequently happened was that I would show up and I'd be all ready to do the dance and then they would say, Oh, you know, somebody dropped out of the program and we had to change some things around and you we're gonna do a different choreography. We're gonna do this other choreography. And I would go, But I don't know that choreography. I can't go out there and dance this thing. That I don't know, right. and they said, "No, it'll be fine. It'll be great. Just, Just follow it. along." And I was mm. like, "Okay." And so I would get up, you know, and there would be these, <laughs> you know, beautiful dancers on either side of me doing, you know, this embedded in hundreds of years of tradition. Yes, right, I mean right. they've been doing. They knew, this oh, here's the change right now. Like, right. Yeah, yeah. And so, and 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 it was this like wonderful <laughs> moment where you know the crowd was just roaring with laughter oh. at the at the sight of this sort of huge white woman on the stage. You know, like totally making a fool of herself. They're probably still talking about it. Oh, and they thought it was fantastic. And, and, and I mean, it wasn't like, they weren't laughing at my expense. They just thought it was endearing. wonderful that I was yeah. trying yeah. to do this. And right. so one of the things that they would do, they would have these lays, these garlands that they would hang over the heads of the, their favorite dancer. Right. And so at the these end of these shows, I would I would just be covered you would look in like a Hawaiian, Hawaiian graduation. graduation. Yes. <laughs> yes. I would have lays up to my eyeballs. And it was like this wonderful thing. And I would go backstage afterwards and I would be all sort of like confused and dismayed about what had just happened and then you know one of the elders would come up to me and, and he would say sort of this thing where like you don't really know how to dance but you dance as if you rak mung dai. yeah and i was like as okay. if you were, as if you love thailand as if you Aww. or if you love mung dai, which mung is dai, the yeah, thai nation true. in shan state um and so it was this like incredible thing that they they realized that i was I was doing this because I, I cared on some sort of kinesthetic level about their lives. And their, and I wasn't just there to, like, interview them about how awful things were, right. you know, Which is for how they're often migrants engaged. and yeah. refugees and the sort of um, victimizing discourse that often comes from scholarship. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't just interested in that. I was interested in the sort of capacity building that they're creating through the arts. Um, and so... So yeah, our entrance into the field, like those those moments are similar, so yeah. important, and 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 I and I see the parallels too with with both of us um, going to graduate school in Hawaii and 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 having the and taking very seriously the charge that you know we we ought to horizontalize the right. research relationship, and sometimes it's nice to. To, uh, to have a role, whether that role be expert or whether that role be clown, in yeah. my case, um, it allows you a, a way to relate to your research community in a much more meaningful way. Yeah, and, and I did talk a little bit about the ever-changing roles that I had to do as a researcher because depending on who I was speaking with, I would be the expert. But because I was so new in L.A., I was a complete novice mm -hmm. to the community. But because I grew up in the United States, I was Thai American. But at the same time, I came when I was 10, so I was really Thai. Mm -hmm. And I and and having to kind mm. of tease that out during the interview. You've always been negotiating that. Super. I had to bring that to the forefront, kind of negotiate it in public as before it was always my kind of identity struggle mm -hmm. and and knowing when to be what to whom in order to develop a relationship but not in a manipulative way but in a way that so that we have something to build on this seems like a like a important synthesis of if you think like that uh you know kind of a ethnic studies presents kind of a uh a decol one decolonizing antithesis saying like, well, look, you need to, you, you really need to be of uh, a community to, to kind of understand it. And, mm -hmm. you know, th this, and, and that's how I've always found that somewhat troubling. It's like, say like, you're not allowed to, to care or be interested unless you're, you're actually one of X, Y, or Z. Um, but it seemed, but, but 
the the impulse comes from a a good place and it seems like this is maybe the 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 the, the next phase is where you can um Yes, you shouldn't do the kind of colonial model of scholarship, mm-hmm. but there's a way to to engage with a community that is that is perhaps more responsible, that is more recipro- reciprocal, and that can still um, allow us to to be interested uh, cross culturally and to to investigate and not and not have it be the old leveraging. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right, and and I think what what maybe is easier for us working in diaspora is that we went into a community that was already with um with an active ongoing process of space building and space mm-hmm. definition and inclusion and from as a reaction to being excluded mm-hmm. so in that sense going into it and showing that you are part of that space building mm-hmm. and you're trying to help them define their space in exclusion mm-hmm. um, gives you a different perspective entirely as opposed to looking at it from the outside now I want to tell a little a short little story because I w- went up to northern Thailand to visit a friend who was doing field work in Chiang Rai and me being a Thai woman that didn't speak any northern Thai um, going into the mountains in Chiang Rai made everyone extremely nervous, mm-hmm. extremely nervous in Chiang Rai, in mm-hmm. Chiang Rai, in the community, because they didn't know if I was coming to check their identification card or if I was. They knew your census work right. from, the <laughs> from L.A. Right, right. Ah, um, she's one of the counters. <laughs> she's ah. a counter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and so they didn't know because the only people that would come up. And paid any attention to them were government kind of counters, mm-hmm. whether to take, you know, samples mm-hmm. or names or counting, <laughs> whatever. And my white male friend was less scary to them than me. Mm-hmm. And oh. that whole negotiation they had perfected was perfected the art of not being governed. And you here, you were <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> surveilling. Yeah. Right. And so I really had to explain <laughs> to them. And, you know, so one of my, my ways of, of showing um, was was by you know uh bathing outside mm. um kind of being really just mm-hmm. low maintenance doing mm-hmm. things that, that that those kinds that of people would not have done who yeah. were right coming to, right you know yeah. stayed i stayed with the community mm-hmm. and, and everything and and it's so interesting because it was completely different from my experience in la and so to have them kind of happen back to back was um uh was a just again interesting juxtaposition that's so interesting that the insider outsider conundrum that often comes up in anthropology and and in doing that kind of ethnographic work um yeah but we have various strategies of overcoming that right and seeing that those categories are are really false categories and that you know there are all kinds of ways that we can engage with various communities and that's why I think um, sort of the new guard of social science researchers are really taking very seriously um, the sort of the idea that we can be activists, we can be engaged, you know, we can sort of um, try to do this as ethically as possible and try to confer ownership of our research back to our research collaborators. However, we can right and and so there's multiple strategies of doing that but i think you've done that so beautifully and, in your and work. i think our our strong roots in um the activist scholar comes from both of our undergraduate and graduate work because you went to sfsu mm-hmm. the birth of ethnic studies yep. and asian american studies yep. where all of that was happening mm-hmm violently actually in the 1960s and they just celebrated um a recent anniversary of the founding of ethnic studies Mm -hmm. as a field yeah actually the buildings at uh, san francisco state university were shot at by police um because they had sit-ins and they demanded to have an ethnic studies department and there were students who were sort of violently shot down by police force in the 70s because of it and so we have you know there are people who have been fighting for our ability to do this kind of research for in a the long way time. that we do, so, so it's, it, yeah, it's nice to acknowledge yeah. that genealogy. And the the I was just thinking, um, you know, it's it's not exactly that this is people have been thinking about this. The the, the famous uh, anthropologist that we all know, Clifford Geertz, mm-hmm. has a, has a, has a very um, you know well known story of doing research in Bali and not being able to sort of crack the uh, crack the nuts and figure out what's going on here um, until he starts 
kind of participating the community goes to a cockfight and the police raid it and he has this moment where he is pulled in uh to to hide like as as the the fellow Balinese were and he suddenly um it changes the terrain entirely but it seems like he was he's like a, obviously a special person and, and has and, and, and it was kind of like oh that's an interesting thing that happened but it I guess why do you think it seems to be a uh, almost a movement now, or or a or a, a, w- a wider expectation, not not just the the outsider rogue research uh, kind of. Well, I well yeah. So Geertz had this sort of when in Rome moment when he went, uh, you know, to the cockfight, um, and of course, I, I love teaching that piece because it is that sort of a, a good uh, example of how to like be a participant in observation and really like get into the field but it's also really fraught with a lot of problematic yes. like <laughs> connotations <laughs> with deep throat and deep play and like all of that weird sort of emphasis on the phallic and stuff <laughs> but um i think that what what has really gained momentum for doing this kind of scholarship is the intensive engagement of um post-colonial and indigenous scholars themselves who have come out and demanded that these kinds of research relationships are fraught with you know imperialist kind of ideas and so it's not acceptable anymore to the community to for someone to swoop in certainly get scoop out their data and to never be seen again so i think we really have to honor um scholars like uh uh, edward said or lila abu lukhud um you know sort of um minority or you know scholars who have been marginalized subaltern scholars um who have done really fantastic work and really held the mirror up to the academy and said hey um, we have voices too, and that's like Gayatri Spivak's, you know, can the subaltern speak mm-hmm. question, right? That looms large on our, on my conscience, um, and so I think it's something that if you want to be taken seriously as a scholar um, from here on out, you really have to engage very seriously with those questions. Ditto. <laughs> <laughs> it was she said it so beautifully. I have nothing to add. <laughs> Okay, so for those of us, you know, I'm I'm a historian. Uh, I I work with only dead people, mm-hmm. and so I try to I interact with them uh, through the through the pages. But uh, uh, fortunately, I get to go to these wonderful countries and be in their archives and try to do my best at uh, 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 researching in responsible ways. So for for scholars or for or uh, junior or senior who are trying to improve in this way what would what what advice would you give what things have worked for you what what steps would you take well uh, as a uh, as a scholar um uh, there are i i would have to pay homage to probably the two texts that have most deeply influenced me in terms of thinking this way um which uh, as i mentioned edward said's uh, orientalism but Um, more specifically his concept of reflexivity. So the notion of reflexivity, meaning that, you know, you have to really be honest with yourself and your audience about who you are, your worldview, what your political agenda is. And this notion that it's possible for us to be unbiased in our work is totally absurd (laughs) in, in, in my, in my view. And that's not to say that you shouldn't sort of strive to, um, taking into account multiple, sides and multiple perspectives but um you know constantly keeping that sort of reflexive positionality is super important the other text uh would be linda tuhivai smith's decolonizing methodologies um that's a text that just kind of um uh, uh, opened up a whole new realm for me in terms of how I can best engage in the field and also in how I teach my students. I, I make that text mandatory in all of my classes um, because it very early on introduces to them the need to um, not sort of sit within this kind of sort of Western imperialistic sort of pri- privileged knowledge perspective that they have been taught throughout their lives and in their other classes and sort of so um, just the the recognition that there are multiple knowledge systems and there are 
a variety of different epistemologies. There are indigenous epistemologies, uh, you know, different ways of, of engaging with the world that, that we ought to take just as seriously as we do Western epistemologies. Um, so those are at least like sort of texts in terms of the actual doing part. I think that could take on a multi like multiple different um, iterations. Um, but I think the most important thing is that if you're going to do field work, that you... Um, you keep this sort of positionality of, of that you're a student. You're a student of these people's world. And it's an honor to have them impart that knowledge on you. Um, one of the things that Linda Tuhivai uh, Smith says in Decolonizing Methodologies is, you know, research is one of these dirty words in the indigenous world um, because it imparts this notion that, you know, all these people from the West are coming in and building. Extracting. They're, they're building <laughs> right. their careers they're, they're off They're mining of, information in yeah. the community. Her, her word is they're building their um, careers off of other people's misery. And so mm. when I read that, I was just kind of floored and I was like, wow, okay, I, I cannot do that. I don't know exactly how I'm going to do that. And I found my own way of doing things, and I'm not sure that I totally avoided doing that. But uh, but I, I know that I, I couldn't do this kind of research. At least to have it in your mind as yeah. a goal. Right, yes. I think, yeah. So having that reflexive attitude um, is super important. Yeah, and and the the tips I want to give to scholars who are community members is that, yes, we have taken methodology and yes, uh, we have been trained, quote unquote, to do what we do and are experts in that way when we do go collect data, but you are still a member of the community and the expectations are going to be there. And I think a lot of Western trained researchers forget that, mm -hmm. forget that once they get into the field, you are just you now. Right. And the positionality, it's all perceived. It's all relative. And you're part of the community with everything that that implies. Exactly. And you do have to participate. You don't have a choice. Right. I wasn't given a choice whether or not I wanted to be a participant or observer. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, and I'm, I don't say that in a, a, a regretful way or anything, but it's just it's going to be different. And for the students that I'm mentoring who are going into their own community, doing the work to be that to be mindful. They still mm -hmm. have to be mindful of not taking that kind of colonized Western framework and otherness in back into their community mm -hmm. because it's even more harmful when one member of the community does it um, mm -hmm. and it becomes particularly insidious mm -hmm. and it can spread in ways that, that you have no control over um, when you're doing field work. And um, I don't have any, I'm not, not a morning person, just full disclaimer. So my brain is like <laughs> not on full throttle. So I have no text. Yeah, we got, we got up at the crack of 11 to, to uh, <laughs> No, there, I have no text to refer to, but um, just, just the, the work that sociolinguists have been doing in the role of the interviewers mm -hmm. and how that affects your interlocutors and the idea of stance and the positionality of everyone involved and the fact that it's dynamic and fluid and negotiable and must be negotiated at all times, I think taps into what taps into that wire that I just tapped and also <laughs> tapped into um, what, what Tanya was talking about. It's just the mindfulness of your presence, right? And your positionality and, and the ever-changing role that you have. And, and it, I, can't, I can't help but think, I mean, I think this is, this is applicable to anyone doing research in any part of the world, but it's just so easy in Southeast Asia to be accepted and to be invited to be a part of this. You know, it's, it, it really is, I, I think I have this kind of pet theory that, you know, globalization kind of begins at these Southeast Asia crossroads, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in the spice trade. And for longer than any other part of the world, Southeast Asia has been used to people passing through its shores, passing to its mountains uh, yeah, yeah, of, of, of all stripes, of all colors, of all, and, and they have a space in their brain um, more developed than maybe any other part of the world for for understanding uh, people who come from the outside mm -hmm. and they're they're engaging with. Uh, you know, you go to a village the first time. If you're game, they're happy to get you up to the marriage table at a wedding you've never been to mm -hmm. or the people you don't know. Um, you know, in my village in Wyoming, I grew up in that wouldn't happen. You would you wouldn't be <laughs> ridden out of town on a rail. Mm -hmm. But it's you know there there's a 
uh, Southeast Asia. It's know, not a, as well defined uh, in a kind of a well bordered in locality, right? It, it, that was something that I had a, a difficult time with while I was doing field work because I was going to a lot of festivals like Poi uh, Sanglong, which is the novice ordination mm-hmm. uh, ceremony. I went to like six or seven Poi Sanglong ceremonies and each time they would sort of invite me and I would like <laughs> sit at the t- head of the table and they'd be like serving me and right. stuff and it was this sort of like, oh, the Farang gets to kind of have this privileged positionality and each time I felt like that was a very uncomfortable position yeah. to be in but still recognizing how that gave me so much access to different research collaborators, but you know, and it's a ch- and it's a choice that they're making. They they want if they're you know and it yeah it's yes it's, and it's, no it's yes a, and no yes and no but and so but yeah you have to sort of thread very carefully in terms of how you negotiate that role and 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 be very conscientious of not taking advantage of, right. of that. Don't pull sure. a Captain Cook on Hawaii. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. No. Don't lest don't you become supper. Yeah, yeah. Well, don't it, show it ended up. Per- appropriately for him. <laughs> <laughs> Karmically. Yeah, yes, yes. So we're talking Buddhist <laughs> terms, right? Um, yeah, that definitely. And and again, I just want to point out um, that that uh, indigenous scholars don't get that type of invitation. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. We don't get that type of access and invitation yeah. at all. We have to access it through the regular social yeah. channels that are allowable in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was interesting when you brought up um, the the duty to kind of present the community, right? Mm-hmm. So there happened to be another uh, community member doing fieldwork at the same time in LA, all two of us, and there are still only two of us right now, <laughs> but th- there are more. We're, we're mentoring yes. more up, yeah. up down the pipelines. But so my friend Mark, who will be one of the keynotes um, at, at COTS, uh, Council on Thai Studies Conference, he was there also, and the aunties got wind of this. Said, "Oh, you're doing a PhD? There's another one of you. He's around. Let me let us introduce the two of you, nice. so so that you need to meet because otherwise you're you're alone. And wouldn't that be sad, you know? And <laughs> and yes, and they, she had no idea how sad we were <laughs> to be the you know feel like we were the only one. But 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 then there was this." Uh, um, kind of joy of putting us together yeah. and and uh, <laughs> supporting the upcoming next generation mm. and they knew in the community that a PhD is very prestigious but we weren't sure they weren't sure what exactly we were going to do with it and how we were going to get jobs <laughs> and how we were going to pay you know th- the details were very murky but they were right. but they were very excited that mm. this is what we're doing but then the they must feel vindicated with your <laughs> prestigious <laughs> position now. and and um <laughs> The, the underlying message was you give us a voice. Yeah. Give us a voice because yeah. we nobody ever talks about us. Mm-hmm. Nobody understands us and be that voice for us because you're already on that stage. Mm-hmm. But no pressure. You know, you do you, <laughs> boo. But <laughs> just don't do your people wrong, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I think... And it's those moments where it, you realize that your research collaborators are really the ones doing the research for you. I mean, you're just kind of the privileged observer and it's, it, yeah, it's those kinds of moments where like they, they recognize what's going on and they're like, Oh, let me help you out. And and that's, I mean, those are, those are, that's, that's probably speaks to that. You did a really good job, like entering into the field and, and establishing really good ties, you know, because there's a lot of instances of, of, scholars going into the field and being hated <laughs> you know there's a lot especially in anthropology yes you know like there's certain there's a rich uh, tradition of hated anthropologists oh yeah like you go up <laughs> you know northern california amongst the york indians like there's two words that you can't mention one of them is crowbar and the other one is anthropology like they don't want to hear <laughs> it and there's good reason for that right right and and by and the kind of work that we're doing and well, I don't want to give us too much credit in in <laughs> in the community having more agency. I think the yeah. community has always had agency yeah. in the way that they are portrayed because they are the people who are giving away that nugget of that glimpse of mm. information and their world and mm. they ch- can or cannot give whatever it is the other person's mm-hmm. asking for but I don't think that it's been recognized mm-hmm. that level of agency mm-hmm. until recently yeah. and now that now that I keep tapping this wire and now that we it's out there mm-hmm. right we can't ignore it anymore that the community is is 
a third, a second or mm-hmm. third researcher. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and in that vein, something that I, I hope to do later in my research is conferring authorship back to the research collaborators. And, you know, why not co-author a paper with one of the people you interviewed? Like, why don't we do that? You know, we should be doing that. That's a different podcast altogether. I know, but like the, <laughs> that's a whole other I'm, issue. But it is it is indicative right. of at least these ideas are starting to come to fruition and there are people doing that. And and you know, I think that that's sort of that's the future direction and and I think that that's that's one of those ways that we can answer this question of how can the subaltern speak or can the subaltern speak? Well, yes, let's find ways of giving them a voice without speaking for them, but allowing them to speak right. for themselves. And, and of course, everyone can speak is yeah. whether or not people listen, right? Yeah. Everyone's speaking all the time. Yeah. So, you know, our role so. then can just be the one of like amplifying the right. voice. We can be the yeah. microphone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, for those who are new to Southeast Asian studies or um, are just listening to this podcast on happenstance, let's ta- explain a little bit about the community that you worked with mm. and their geography and mm-hmm. how they fit in to that particular part of the world mm-hmm. or not fit in in this case. Yeah. So the Shan state is a, is a state in northern Burma, northeastern Burma. And um, I worked with um, uh, the people who call themselves Thai. Most of them are Thai Luang. Um, and they have fled from the Shan state. There's about the estimates of how many have come to Thailand are very tenuous because most of them have not registered. But we could estimate that there's roughly 200,000 of them that have fled across the border and settle mostly in Chiang Mai, but also in Mae San and in Chiang Rai. So provinces. those are northern, northern prov- Thailand. Up, upper border um, yeah. north of Thailand. Yeah. Um, and uh, so... What's interesting about the Shan state is that it is currently undergoing the world's longest ongoing civil war. And most people are not aware of that fact. Um, So they've been at civil war um, since the sort of uh, posts or the socialist era in Burma uh, with the Tatmada, which is the Burmese military. And so Shan state has a a variety of different ethnic rebel armies. There's the Shan state army south, the Shan state army north. um, There's uh, uh, the Wa and the um, Karen uh, national army. There's there's a lot of different rebel armies. The Shan state armies, um, both north and south, have sort of... um, had the sort of longest and like hardest fought resistance movement. And a part of that is because um, Thai people, they, they're called Shan, which is an exonym. Um, Shan is uh, understood by um, my research collaborators and also others to be a um, kind of bastardization of Siam. Mm. Um, and so right. it's something that Burmans called these people because they thought that they were Thai ish um even though they're not um uh, even though i mean they thai speak is the progenitor right. language to thai um so they do speak and, and they're culturally similar in terms of theravada buddhism and stuff but but different because they were ruled by a series of um princedoms called xiao fa um so they were you know multiple different princedoms and um and they were considered to be sort of semi-sovereign and autonomous and not Burman. I mean, they don't identify with the Burman ethnic group. And so um, their relationship then became very, very fraught during their colonial era uh, because then Shan State became incorporated into Burma. <laughs> and so since that time, uh, there's been this sort of major exodus, both within the Shan State and out of the Shan State. Um, and so B- Thailand has kind of been on the receiving end of of, of right. a lot of these refugees. And there's about there's about 2.3 million Burmese refugees that have left Burma. Um, and uh, a very small percentage of them, about 120,000, live in um, actual refugee camps along the Thai-Burma border. Thai people um, have never been officially recognized as political or economic refugees by any outside agency other than their own agencies. They have set up their own refugee camps, but the UNHCR, the EU, nobody recognizes them in the same way that the Karen are recognized and other ethnic groups. And And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, in particular, like involvement with religious uh, missionary groups who advocated for on the behalf of Karens and 
you know, the Thai were Theravada Buddhist. And there have been, Thai people have been living in Northern Thailand for millennia because that's also a part of Mung Thai, Mm -hmm. which is their sort of Pan Thai ethnic identity, which includes Yunnan, includes parts of Assam and India, it includes parts of Laos, Northern Thailand, and uh, Northeastern Burma. A tiny tip of Vietnam. And a tiny tip tip of Vietnam. So the Thai are a huge ethno-linguistic group, and they're very, very diverse. Um, And and they've been under tremendous amount of pressure uh, for the last 200 years. Yes. And I think the discourse in... That discourse in Thai nation building mm-hmm. included them, right? So mm-hmm. in Thai, there's Thai, and then there's Thai with no ya at the end in yeah. the spelling. And during time of intense nation building, people in power would talk about the Thai people mm-hmm. with no ya at the end, so the Thai mm-hmm. people, and mm-hmm. wanted to include them. And I wonder if that is why they're not considered... Um, refugees maybe mm-hmm. they're considered seen as repatriates yeah as, yeah. as because it's, it's part of their home yeah territory. there's always been so you can't be, there's always there's been Thai people yeah. in thailand so exactly. it seems like how do you extra uh, you know how do you separate the refugees from you know the people who are already right. there and so how there's do you a sort of fraught relationship artificial western borders yeah. into part of the lost territories the, yeah. yes yeah. <laughs> shane where shane are you here um <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, and and I think that has a, a mm-hmm. large part to do with it is that we're all Thai. Yeah. So, yeah. but then you would the logical extension of that mm-hmm. would be oh then we would help each other, but that section oh. of the discourse is currently missing because that's when the otherness and discourse how, comes how in. Thai have been villainized in in much of popular Thai government and media discourse and just like everyday lives like you know I had a a, you know my my Thai friends would sometimes say awful things about Thai people uh, you know saying that they were violent and that they steal and all these kinds of things and uh, and that's sort of a part of like the the pressure that Thailand is feeling of all of these Burmese refugees coming in and many of them becoming scapegoats as we see those like big international are they are they on the I was gonna think say in the for the Thai government or for Thais who are administering refugee camps are are the are the Sean is there a hierarchy because they're you know more Thai than than other refugees might be or or not mm-hmm. is that I think they are they're considered more Thai than like the Karen <laughs> they definitely sure. rank higher than than and any that's, and that yeah. works in their favor no, yes and no. I think it does because it allows them to move within the society under the radar. Like they 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 can pass as Thai okay. and often like they if they can speak Thai, they kind of can look Thai and so they can sort of pass off in a way that like Karen and other ethnic uh, minority groups in Burma really just can't. And so um in that way I think that that the Thai government yeah. is just sort of like, well, they don't really need the same kind of protections. Yet there are like these people are, are are engaged in really precarious forms of labor. And so like the migrants, if you go to Chiang Mai in particular, there's like these huge construction camps with shanty towns surrounding yes. them. Yes. And these are all predominantly like a majority of them, I would venture to say like sixty to eighty percent of them are Thai migrants from the Shan state. Some of them are other hill tribe folks and some of them are, are, are Thai laborers as well. And I mean, they'll be doing sort of 10 to 12 hours of labor in these like very um, dangerous construction sites, but getting paid very, very little. They sometimes work as maids and guest houses. Right. And so, you know, starting as early as the age of 10, in the case of some of my research collaborators. So um, so these folks are, are definitely like experiencing major sort of marginalization in Thai society. Um, but, you know, there's also kind of this sort of Thailand needs and wants that kind of precarious labor force as all, all large states want do, yeah. um, because they benefit from that, right? Um, and so, and that's a whole nother sort of problematic. And that's I think a part of podcast also, yeah. But that's a part of why Don't they're now the giving, parent. yeah, they're now giving a lot of can't um, afford it. migrant visas to, especially to Thai migrant laborers because you know it's it's a very um, lucrative labor force. They'll do the kinds of work that Thai people don't want right. to do, and often they don't have the linguistic obs- uh, yeah. obstacle yeah. that the other ethnic groups have coming right. from. So, they, so, so for the potential 
em- employer they can they can plug them in yeah without uh, much disruption yeah. to yeah. the labor force right whereas yeah. the the big construction labor camps in in central Thailand mm-hmm. are they were traditionally northeasterners and now that the north northeastern region is becoming more um, economically <laughs> um, viable on their own and not dependent mm-hmm. on the centralized um, economy of Bangkok mm-hmm. those uh, construction shanty towns are mm-hmm. more filled with Burmese yeah. workers and Karen workers and yeah. Lahu and Akha yeah. and so yeah. you're getting the the Highland Western Highland mm-hmm. population working in Central Thailand mm-hmm. and all of the problems that come with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, so it behooves them to keep them in those kinds of precarious forms of labor rather than, you know, conferring some kind of rights on them and sort of, oh, you're a refugee because that, you know, means that you have to do a whole series of other things. Right. Once you declare somebody rights. a refugee, you are now accountable to a yeah. list of things yeah. based on um, right. yeah. kind of human rights. Um, yeah agenda but uh, on a lighter note we <laughs> usually end our podcast yes. with what is your favorite dish oh, could be anywhere in southeast asia yeah anywhere in southeast asia and why and what was your first kind of tell us a little oh story gosh. okay about when this love affair started so i first went to a thai temple in chiang mai what Bao. Uh, and there's a, a woman there who has a little noodle shop, and she makes Thai noodles. And it's kind of it's 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 a, it's kind of like a khao soy, which khao soy is is kind of Thai, isn't it? Yes, it's a, yeah. yeah. It's, so anyway, it's not Thai. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Oops. khao soy advocates. <laughs> um, but but she makes it, and and that's the sort of the the Thai specialty is is the yellow um, uh, uh, tofu. Uh, cow soy mm-hmm. so it's this like beautifully vibrant sort of thick creamy sauce with noodles in it and all kinds of delicious garnishes and the first time I had this I was just I almost <laughs> lost my it was just the most amazing beautiful flavorful and me I'm a vegetarian as well so I like appreciated on so many levels having this incredibly nourishing protein bomb of a noodle dish presented to me and because normally it has like big legs of chicken yeah in yeah if you have cow soy like traditionally and so this didn't have a bunch is of meat it, and in it's it. always vegetarian yeah because so it's, it's made just yeah. it's made just with um fermented soybeans and so and it's that's like a very sort of special thing for for thai and uh it's it's absolutely one of my favorite things and probably what got me through <laughs> and, and what is it arduous called? field work what is it called in um uh, it's uh well they called it cow soy luang mm. So, because it was just, it's, it's, yeah, it's the yellow cow soy. <laughs> so, yeah. Excellent. That sounds mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, Tanya, thanks so much for being here with us and Ganjan as always. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll look to be hearing more from you in the future. Oh. And please come back to Northern Illinois University. Thank you. Enjoy thanks the rest for of the conference. Me. Thanks. Southeast Asia Crossroads would like to thank Michael McSweeney for production assistance and David Starfire for today's music. Visit davidstarfire.com for more information.